Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Before we get stuck into the episode, I just want to apologize if you can hear a little bit of keyboard typing in the background. I'm always taking a few notes when I'm interviewing a guest, and this is the first time I've noticed that um, the mic picked up on it. I tried my best to take it out of the recording as much as I could during editing. However, you can still hear it a little bit. Luckily, you can also clearly hear everything that Eric had to say, but I still wanted to point it out for you people, just to let you know that I've become aware of it and I will endeavor not to let it happen again. I'll chalk it up to the fact that I'm still new to podcasting at the end of the day. It's only my 15th episode and probably my third guest interview, if I'm not wrong. So sorry about that. Welcome back to the podcast and welcome to this interview with Eric Trexler, during which we talked about, if not everything there is to know about how to adopt a vegetarian or vegan dietary pattern to support muscle growth and general health, then we definitely talked about everything that I could think of for the interview and a few things that I had not thought of. So I am super excited to share this interview with you. Eric Trexler is a pro natural bodybuilder and a sports nutrition researcher. With a PhD in human movement science, several years of university-level teaching experience, and several years of coaching under his belt, he's currently the Director of Education at Stronger by Science, a co-author of Mass Monthly Applications in Strength Sport, just like Dr. Eric Helms from a few episodes ago, and the co-creator of Diet and Coaching Up Macro Factor. Since Eric was extremely generous with his time, I decided to split the interview up into two different episodes. In part one today, we're going to cover protein for vegans and vegetarians who want to improve their physique by gaining muscle or losing fats. Whereas in part two, we're going to cover micronutrients, supplements for health and performance, and we're going to answer some spicy questions like, is it true that eating too much soy can affect your sex hormone levels? Whether you're a vegan, a vegetarian, interested in one of these dietary patterns, or want to learn more about how to optimize your protein intake for gains, and which micronutrients you might need to pay attention to, or which supplements to buy to improve your performance, this is the episode for you. Well, both of them are the episodes for you. So thank you for listening to the intro. Let's get straight into the interview. Eric, welcome on the podcast, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So today, I would like to talk about how to set up a vegetarian or vegan dietary pattern if you're also interested in maximizing body composition changes, so muscle growth and fat loss. But to begin with, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Who are you? What do you do? And why are you so awesome at doing it? Uh, well, that, that's a great question. Who am I? Um, <laughs> let's see. I, I am, my name's Eric. Uh, I have been studying exercise and nutrition for a while. Um, and made a, a bit, you know, currently making a career out of it, which is, which is nice. Uh, so I work, uh, um, Greg Knuckles and I, uh, kind of do our thing over at Stronger by Science. We've got a podcast, a bunch of articles, a coaching program, stuff like that. 
Uh, so I, I guess my formal title is Director of Education over there at Stronger by Science, uh, but I'm also a uh, co-author of the Mass Research Review. We review a bunch of nutrition and training studies every month, send it out the first of the month. Uh, I'm also co-creator of the Macro Factor Diet app. Uh, so it's basically a nutrition app where you, you tell the app a little bit about yourself, uh, what kind of goals you have in mind. It kind of helps steer you along and, and give you some really nice analytics as you go. So the idea with a macro factor with, with the macro factor diet app is you know, essentially, first of all, to make a really good food logging app uh, for people who want to set their own goals uh, or, or kind of make their own diet. But we also wanted to kind of replicate the function of a diet coach uh, for everything other than the really hands-on strategizing and behavior change, right? So very difficult to just replicate every element of having a human being supporting you along the way. Uh, but in terms of crunching the numbers, setting targets for macro uh, macronutrient intakes, things like that, that, that's pretty much what the app does. So between mass, stronger by science and macro factor, that's how I spend like all my time. And relevant to this conversation, uh, I'm also uh, on a vegetarian diet, uh, very strictly. So I, I probably have some useful experience to lean on here. Perfect. Thank you very much for the uh, great introduction. I am going to add all relevant links in the show notes so everybody can get to Stronger by Science, Mass, and of course, Macro Factor as well. Now, that's a nice segue. You mentioned you're on a very strict vegetarian diet. So let's get started with talking about a vegetarian and vegan dietary pattern. My first question for you would be, what are the common concerns that people who are interested in uh, body composition changes might have as it pertains to this kind of dietary pattern? Why are they worried that it might not be quote unquote optimal for gains? Yeah, so broadly speaking, there's a few things that come to mind when I just kind of scan the general vibes among the, the public. And I've had some clients in the past who have said, I, I'm interested in doing more of a plant-based diet, but I have some concerns. Usually the concerns, uh, the, the first one is that, you, you know, it's going to be way too hard to get enough protein on a, mm -hmm. a vegetarian or vegan diet. Uh, or even if you get enough protein, you're going to have the incorrect balance of amino acids and it's going to make it harder to, to build muscle or to just retain the muscle that you have. Uh, another concern that comes up sometimes um, is some level of concern about uh, how adopting a, a vegan or vegetarian diet might impact some key hormones. Uh, so it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, if I go on a vegan or vegetarian diet, I'm, I'm going to have to eat a bunch of soy products. And that's going to really skew the balance of androgenic and estrogenic hormonal effects in my body. Uh, and then a third concern often relates to just micronutrient coverage. So some people might say, well, I heard if I'm, if I'm on a vegan diet, I'm not going to get enough vitamin B12 or I'm not going to get enough iron or something like that. So those are the three things that, that come up the most. And there, there's a few, you know, if we take a step back and not just focus on the actual concerns, but what's driving those concerns, in many cases, uh, it, it's kind of a combination of, of tradition, just like what do people trying to build muscle do, right? And, and so that might lead cause you to, to gravitate toward a particular dietary pattern. Uh, there's some degree of uh, conflating correlation and causation. So someone might say, when I think of a person who's vegan, what do they look like? And the first thing that comes to mind is not immensely muscle bound, right? Um, so, so there's a little bit of correlation and causation uh, misattribution going into that. Some of it's just appeal to nature, which is a logical fallacy. Uh, and some people say, well, if you look at, um, you know, traditional hunter gatherer societies who don't have access to supermarkets, many, uh, you know, a high percentage of those uh, uh, different hunter gatherer societies do uh, tend to consume a combination of animal and plant based food sources. Uh, and, and then, um, like I said, with the hormonal effects, sometimes there's just some um, some narratives pertaining to masculinity that, that really fuel it. Um, so uh, there's a documentary that was popular a few years ago called Game Changers. Uh, yes. in, in terms of the rigor of the documentary, I think it fell short in many, many different ways. So I can't really recommend it as like an evidence based source of of information. 
but I do think they covered some of these kind of traditional elements that lead into these misconceptions and, and also some of the the narratives pertaining to masculinity and, you know, estrogenic effects of soy and things like that. So it's good for kind of setting up the problem and then stops there. <laughs> when they get into, into the evidence, it gets kind of off the rails. All right. Thank you for covering all of these reasons. I agree with you in general. These are the same concerns that a lot of clients come to me with. Uh, when they already are vegan or vegetarian or the, when they're interested in uh, trying one of the two approaches. Now, you already mentioned some of the, um, the reasons that could be driving these concerns, and you also termed them misconceptions. So I think we're headed into a bit of myth-busting now, where I'm thinking, let's cover each of these concern in order, concerns plural, in order and cover the reasons whether they are valid or whether they are not. And if they're not, why? And if they are valid, why as well? Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So let's start with protein, since it's the first one you mentioned. You mentioned either the concern is not getting enough protein or the concern is not getting the right balance of amino acids. Now, is either of the two a valid concern? Yeah, it's uh, it's tricky because th there's at least uh, a bit of a granule uh, of truth to it, you know. So so is it all things considered, if if your goal was to eat 400 grams of protein per day for some reason, uh, mm -hmm. I can't think of a reason why that would be a goal, but if it were, uh, hypothetically, you know, would you want to have animal-based products on the table to make that easier? Yes. So you know, in, in this in the broadest sense. Uh, going, for example, on a vegan diet can make it a little bit more challenging to get high amounts of protein into the diet. Uh, but without question, it is feasible to get a totally adequate amount of protein from a vegan diet. So that's why I, I call it a misconception. There is a little granule of truth to it in the broadest sense. Um, but but in terms of is is being on a vegan diet a barrier to getting enough protein on a daily basis? My answer would be no. Uh, and it's never been easier. Um, I mentioned that I was vegetarian. I, I actually recently shifted from vegetarian to to vegan. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, it's not a hard barrier. Uh, but but what I was getting at is um, it's never been easier to be on a vegan diet. Uh, when, when you look at the selection of products available with high amounts of protein to help you get to a protein goal. Um, yeah. So there's is it a little bit harder? Do you have to be a little bit more strategic to get a very high protein intake on a vegan diet? Absolutely. When compared to an omnivorous diet, but you can certainly get there. Um, and then when it comes to amino acid breakdown, uh, once again, if you are trying to make, make it as easy as possible to get all the essential amino acids that you need, of course, it, it would be more convenient to have access to animal-based products. Um, but there's absolutely no reason to suggest that uh, being on a vegan diet is an insurmountable barrier to getting a a sufficient mixture of essential amino acids. So the reason that's important is if we want to stimulate the building of new muscle or retain the muscle we have, uh, what we need to do is make sure that we not just you know have enough protein, but we need to make sure we have enough of all of the essential amino acids in sufficient quantities. And one of the challenges there is that, um, you know, animal-based proteins typically do have all of the essential amino acids within each individual protein source. With plant-based sources, it's very common that a plant-based source will be lacking at least one of these essential amino acids. So what we have to do is just kind of make sure we have a diverse selection of, of protein sources. But if we do that, it's really not that hard to, to, to make these proteins kind of mix and match to, to get an adequate balance. So it's one of those things that is theoretically in the broad, broadest sense, there, there is a granule of truth that a vegan diet takes a little more strategic selection of protein sources. But practically speaking, the, the challenge is, is minimal uh, in, and in some cases negligible. That makes a lot of sense. So what I'm hearing is that Circling back to what you said, one of the um, one of the reasons driving the concern about protein is tradition. So, what do bodybuilders or people interested in body composition usually do? And the first thing you said is 
it can be very challenging to eat 400 grams of protein per day on a, a vegan or vegetarian diet. So it sounds like to me, you're saying if you are steeped into the tradition where bodybuilders would eat uh, incredible amounts of protein that are way beyond what we need to build muscle, yes, being vegan would be a real concern. It would make it very difficult. But in the context of evidence-based practice in terms of protein consumption, then eating enough protein on a vegan or vegetarian diet is very feasible, just a little bit more challenging. And uh, having the right amino acids composition within that protein intake is also possible. Would you agree with that about the tradition aspects? Yeah, yeah, I think the tradition goes two ways. It's, um, you know, first of all, there is kind of a tradition in bodybuilding to go way overboard with, with total protein intake, which you acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And then, then the other thing is just traditionally, what does a bodybuilding meal look like? You know, uh, if, you're, yes. if you were to say just what does a bodybuilder eat flatly and you would, a few meals would come to mind and the protein source would be fish. It might be egg. It might be in many cases it's going to be chicken breast. Um, there's just these kind of traditional food sources that, that kind of make up the bulk of the most cliched kind of generic bodybuilding diet. Right. And you don't look at a bodybuilding diet and say, well, obviously the foundation of that is going to be rice and beans or tofu, right? It's, it's chicken, eggs, beef, fish. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Thanks for clarifying. So then since we're talking about, again, in the context of evidence-based practice, we know that there's a certain amount of protein and you don't necessarily need to go far beyond that in order to build muscle. Can we just clarify how we calculate that protein target? How much protein do we need to support hypertrophy? And does that change if you're not eating animal-based protein? Yeah. So first of all, um, the, the kind of easiest target to set for you know, optimal protein intake for building muscle. Generally speaking, if you look at the research, they're going to say somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of total body weight. Uh, and mm. so that is kind of the generic, you know, here's optimal go. Um, and within that range, whether you're on a vegan diet, a vegetarian diet, omnivorous diet, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't appear to matter based on the, the applied research within that range. Uh, now, for some people, depending on your body composition, that range might not be great. Uh, total body weight isn't necessarily the best way to, to kind of scale protein recommendations. So if you, for example, have uh, a relatively higher body fat percentage, you, you know, maybe you know, you're, you're planning to lose, you know, a pretty significant amount of weight to get down to kind of your goal body weight. Uh, in that scenario, it might be better to go by grams of fat free mass. So basically mm. just removing the body fat element from your, from your weight. Uh, so if you're going by fat free mass, then I would say ideal or the optimal range would probably be two to 2.75 grams of protein per kilogram of fat free mass. Now, that's optimal, right? And so one thing that is really important that uh, doesn't get talked about enough is when it comes to protein targets, what is the actual difference between hmm. optimal and pretty damn good? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. everyone can tell you what the optimal range is, but they won't, they can't really tell you, well, how bad does it get if I'm at 90% of that optimal lower threshold? Mm -hmm. uh, and another question is, how clear is the line that delineates that lower threshold? Is there an obvious drop off when someone goes from 1.6 grams per kilogram of total body weight to 1.5? And if you look at the original meta analysis by Morton and colleagues that kind of gave us that lower limit, you'll find two things. First of all, you can look at the actual dots on the figure, not just like the line of best fit. And it is not a clear delineation. You know, it's it's not like once when you go from 1.6 to 1.5, your gains just drop off a cliff. You can find ample examples within that within that figure itself, where someone with 1.4 grams per kilogram per day is getting better gains than somebody with 1.8. So it is not this super clear delineated cutoff. The other thing is that the uh, 
statistical premise by which that lower boundary was determined is not actually a standard statistical practice. Uh, so basically, they said it looks like the 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 point where the gains flatten out our best estimate based on the statistical process uh, procedure that they used was 1.6. And they said, well, let's let's you know better to be safe than sorry. Let's use the mean as the lower threshold and the upper boundary of the 95% confidence interval as the upper kind of threshold. Oh. So that's how they set the range. They didn't say, well, what's the low end of the 95% confidence interval and the high end? They said, what's the middle of that confidence interval and the high end? So it kind of skewed it positively. And, and I don't even, I don't, I don't like necessarily disagree with the choice to do that because if you're talking about optimal, then obviously you don't want to leave gains on the table. But the reality is that the, the 95% confidence interval for that lower threshold uh, or for I guess for the break point where gains started to flatten out, covered like almost the entire range of protein intakes. I mean, like literally the whole graph. So uh, it's not a super precise cut point where we say, oh, if you're below 1.6, I mean, why are you even trying to train? Like there's no point here. So with that in mind, you know, when someone asked me, well, if if 1.6 is just like pulling teeth, you know, it's uh, you know, it's kind of uh, just way too much trouble and I'm struggling with it and it's very, very difficult. Can I just do 1.4 instead of 1.6? My answer is always hell yeah. Like the, the difference between 1.4 and 1.6 is not immense. Uh, and so what I tell people is if you're not worried about optimal, if you're okay with pretty, pretty damn good and, and you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm getting about 85, 90, 90 percent of my maximal possible gains instead of 100. In that case, I'd say aim for 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram per day uh, based on total body weight. And if you want to scale that to fat free mass, I'd say it's about 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of fat free mass. T to me, that puts you in the pretty damn good range, which for most people over the long term, the difference between pretty damn good and optimal is going to be really difficult to discern one from the other uh, in the long run if you're consistently lifting and, and eating, uh, you know, in accordance with your goals here. So um, that's kind of how I view the range. But, you know, the other part of your question was, does it matter if we're talking about plant based versus animal based? Mm -hmm. I can give you empirical evidence, actual data in humans lifting weights, measuring hypertrophy, where I can say uh, at 1.6, it does not matter. Now, the lower you go, the more it starts to matter. Okay, so that, that is one thing I'll acknowledge in the context of vegan and, and vegetarian diets, especially vegan diets where you, you can incorporate things like dairy and eggs and things like that. So the lower you go, the more the difference matters, right? So the difference between animal-based and plant-based, uh, if we're looking at a diet of 0 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of total body mass, so like right at the RDA in the United States, mm -hmm. the, the difference would be tangible. I mean, it, it would be a, a material difference that would be measurable. When you start getting to 1.6, the difference is essentially nothing. Now, where's the inflection point where you would say this matters enough to care about? It it kind of depends on the person, but I would say if you're consistently in that 1.2 to 1.6 range, especially if you're toward the higher range, probably not a big deal. But the closer you get down to, you know, 1.2, 1.0, 0.8, that's where we start to see differences in these protein sources really, really matter. Right. So um, I've, I've often said for most people, if in the, in terms of bodybuilding and fitness, plant-based, animal-based protein sources, as long as you don't have any glaring shortcomings for a specific essential amino acid, we can broadly view them as equivalent. It starts to get a little different when you get into a protein-restricted diet. And so now we're getting out of the realm of fitness and bodybuilding and into the realm of clinical situations where you might say, because of a medical condition, it is either inadvisable or unfeasible for you to get up to 1.4, 1.6, 1.8 grams per kilogram per day. So within the context of a limited total protein intake, that's where the difference starts to matter. But as you get up to, like I said, 1.4, 1.6, 1.8, at that point, the differences really start to wash out. Okay. So 
the way I'm hearing this is the lower your protein intake goes, the bigger the difference that you're going to see in terms of how much it matters to have yeah. a certain amount of protein per day. So then if we're if you have a lower, maybe it's the it's a lower protein intake than what's optimal, so to speak. Would it make sense to make a bigger effort to optimize your amino acid composition for that protein um, than if you were on a higher protein intake? I would say so. Yeah, I think um, what what we see. Um, so this kind of gets into a discussion about protein quality, mm-hmm. um, and so protein quality. Uh, there are many different scoring systems and metrics to try to rank different protein sources according to their quality score. Uh, these specifics don't matter all that much, but basically what these metrics try to do is say, you know, uh, when we look at, at a protein's characteristics and the, the two most important characteristics are going to be the essential amino acid composition and the digestibility of the protein you could kind of paraphrase protein quality as saying like what with what level of efficiency can this protein source support uh, the retention of human proteins? And, and in, in our context, we're talking about human muscle proteins. So protein quality becomes pretty irrelevant when you're on a moderately high protein diet. Mm. But when you start getting into a lower protein diet, then you can you can make a pretty justifiable case that now the efficiency of protein matters. You know, uh, once once protein intake is high enough, you know, efficiency doesn't matter that much because there's an abundance of protein. So all, all the little differences kind of get lost out, you know, lost in the wash there. But uh, when we start getting into lower protein intakes, then the efficiency does start to matter because we can't compensate for inefficiency with this abundance of total protein. So yeah, I, I would say when you start getting into to lower intakes, when we're getting below, you know, like 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, in those cases, I do think you, you can make the argument that you want to start taking a closer look at, uh, at the amino acid composition and digestibility or broadly speaking, the protein quality score, uh, if the goal is to optimize muscle building. Okay, thank you for explaining that. So in terms of protein quality, what are the highest quality protein sources that vegans and vegetarians can consume? So the highest quality uh, animal-based, sorry, plant-based protein sources we have available. Yeah, so it does differ quite a bit between vegetarians and vegans. Uh, so if you're, uh, for, exa- for example, an ovo-lacto-vegetarian, so you consume egg products and milk products, I mean, whey protein is a very, very, very high-quality protein. Uh, any kind of milk-based pro- protein product, any kind of egg-based protein product uh, is going to be a very high-quality protein product uh, uh, based on the quality scores. Uh, so, mm-hmm. but then when we talk about a vegan diet, uh, you know, soy protein is a very high quality vegan protein. Uh, mycoprotein, uh, which is derived from fungi, uh, that, that is a, a particularly high quality protein source. Uh, from there, and, you know, and then you, you've got um, various uh, protein beverages, uh, so like protein supplements where they, they kind of blend different proteins together. So for example, they might take pea protein and rice protein, put it together, make it highly digestible, great amino acid uh, composition when you combine the two. So, you know, then you start to see some of these combined products that take a a few different sources, uh, process them a little bit so that digestibility goes up. And now we're talking about some pretty high high quality products. So, um, you know, there's a variety of different products, whether it's uh, protein uh, beverages or even just um, kind of uh, meat alternatives alternatives you might find at the grocery store uh, that, that do have a pretty favorable composition when it comes to not just the the protein sources going into it but also the the level of processing and digestibility and to me that that's one of the the funny things that comes up when you hear people talking about vegan and vegetarian diets is within the context of kind of the standard western diet processed has become a bad word uh, it's like a pejorative with regards to food. So everyone kind of says, oh, processed food is terrible. Eliminate processed foods and things like that. What's funny about uh, people who are critical of vegetarian or vegan diets is half of them say like, 
oh, these diets are terrible because people don't seem to be eating enough protein. And that's not because they can't. That's more of just an observation that, you know, people who self-select into these diets tend to report lower protein intakes. Um, so you'll have some people who are critical of vegan and vegetarian diets because the the observational level protein intakes seem to be low. And then you'll see these other people who say, uh, and, and they'll talk about how the protein sources are low quality and stuff like that. Then you'll see these other people who say, oh man, look at this. This is bad. When people go vegetarian mm -hmm. or vegan, they eat more processed foods. Well, when we talk about processing a vegan or vegetarian protein source, we're talking about usually taking two different foods with complementary amino acid compositions, blending them together, which is fantastic, and processing them in a way that makes them more digestible. Uh, so the idea of viewing these processed foods in the context of a vegan diet as being deleterious uh, is really nonsensical. You know, a lot of times when we talk about a processed food being bad in the context of a, a traditional Western diet, the reason that people tend to demonize processed foods is because, uh, well, first of all, there's a little bit of an, a, an appeal to nature fallacy where they're like, ah, oh, this isn't a naturally occurring food, therefore I assume it's bad. So that's just a straight up kind of logical fallacy. But in terms of evidence-based uh, reasons that people are skeptical of processed foods within Western diets, it's a lot of times because they're removing fiber and micronutrients. Uh, and it's a lot of times because uh, these foods tend to end up being very hyper palatable uh, and they can uh, kind of nudge people toward higher intakes of carbohydrate, fat, total calories in a way that promotes weight gain and positive energy balance. But like, man, if, if you're going to go up to a vegan and say, hey, you know, you really need to avoid processed foods because I think you're not getting enough fiber. It's like, dude, I'm I'm a vegan. I if I'm not getting fiber, I'm not eating. Right. So I, I think that that gets a little bit silly because it's like you, you, you criticize the diet because the protein sources are lower quality. And then there are these processing methods that increase the quality of these protein sources. And then you criticize it for being processed. Um, so that was a bit of a tangent. But but broadly speaking, uh, yeah, with uh, when we talk about protein sources in a vegetarian vegan diet uh, or vegan diet specifically, you know, we do have these kind of, you know, we, we've got soy mycoprotein. Uh, some combinations when it comes to uh, uh, protein alternatives, you know, like, that are meant to replicate like chicken or beef. Uh, we've got protein shakes that involve some really nice uh, mixtures of protein sources. And then from there, you're talking about the basics. We're talking about, uh, you know, legumes. We're talking about nuts and seeds uh, and a variety of other uh, grain products that that carry some protein with them as well. So one thing that I can tell you from experience, when people switch from an omnivorous diet to a plant-based diet, one thing that they find very jarring is that they are getting protein that matters from foods that they used to ignore in terms of their protein content. So mm -hmm. you do have to start thinking, okay, well, how much protein am I getting from the grains in my diet uh, or the nuts in my diet on a, on a vegan diet? Whereas I know a lot of folks on an omnivorous diet, if they're bodybuilding focused, they're only counting the protein that's coming from their chicken, eggs, and beef and, and, and you know, milk products and stuff like that. So it, it does, it is a little bit eye opening when you, when you switch from omnivorous to plant-based and you've been focused on bodybuilding and fitness for a while, and you start to realize like, wow, I didn't know that 30, maybe even 40% of my protein on my omnivorous diet was coming from food sources that I didn't even think they had protein. You know, people who just completely ignore a lot of the uh, extra protein that finds its way into their diet through grains and beans and, you know, things like that. So, uh, so yeah, the, the typical omnivorous diet, it, it depends from region to re region across the world. Um, but a lot of people on omnivorous diets are getting 30, 40% of their daily protein from food sources that would, you know, would be, you know, would fit within a vegan diet. And they simply don't even think about that, that extra 30 or 40% of protein. That makes sense. I, it is my own personal experience as well. I, it's only in the last year or so that listening to your podcast and reading your mass articles, I've actually started thinking, oh, I can actually count my beans in my complete total protein intake. So uh, what you're saying is that uh, many people over tend to overcomplicate 
eating enough protein on a vegan and vegetarian diet because they're only considering traditional protein sources within the total protein count when we know that it's the total protein count from all food sources that ultimately leads to muscle growth. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when, when you look at the studies that try to quantify, like, here's how much protein you need for muscle building, they're going off of total protein and they're studying that in people on omnivorous diets. So uh, the the contribution from some of those, you know, lower quality protein sources is literally baked into the recommendations in a way that cannot be parsed. It cannot be separated out, um, you know, from those recommendations based on the way the studies are are conducted. So I, I will acknowledge, though, one change that occurs, you know, when people switch from omnivorous to plant based, when you're on an omnivorous diet and you're a bodybuilder and a lot of your protein is coming from egg whites, you know, chicken breast, these lean protein sources, low fat dairy products, uh, you start putting together a diet and you start to realize you no longer need to have those foods that exclusively exist to contribute fat to your diet or exclusively exist to contribute carbs to your diet. You know, like when I was eating an omnivorous diet with a lot of lean protein sources, there were a lot of foods where, you know, I would, I would go and incorporate a bunch of, you know, potatoes and rice just to get some carbs into the diet. Um, and what you find is that as you're leaning more on, uh, grain products and legumes and nuts as a notable protein source, you no longer have to seek out as many added oils or added carbohydrate sources to try to fill in those gaps. They kind of take care of themselves. And as you seek out enough protein for your diet, you have a tendency to find that you've already got plenty of carbohydrate and fat from those various sources. Yes, and I found the same thing to be true for myself and my clients as well. So that's a, a, a valuable <clears throat> clarification to make. Now, we talked about total protein intake and how much that matters and how much protein quality matters within that context. What about uh, protein distribution and timing? What would you recommend and how much does that matter in the context of having an adequate protein intake per day? Yeah. So one thing that's really important. So the, just basic information, uh, the typical recommendation you'll get from an evidence-based fitness professional is that, uh, you need to focus on protein distribution because of the kind of transient effects of dietary protein feeding. So there's research indicating you consume some protein and it's got leucine, and it's got essential amino acids, right? So you consume a meal, the leucine spikes in your bloodstream that initiates muscle protein synthesis. There's all these essential amino acids around that enables or facilitates the actual building of new muscle proteins, but it's a transient effect. So you get a little spike in protein synthesis, and then you are unable to reinitiate that. It seems within the first hour or two, maybe three, and then, you know, protein synthesis falls back down to baseline and you're once again able to reinitiate that process. So based on that mechanistic understanding, people have said, OK, let's have a meal every three or four hours so that we can spike protein synthesis, let it fall back down to baseline and then spike it again. Uh, because while it's, you know, in the, like I said, in those first couple hours, it seems like the the message just doesn't get through to the muscle. Like, oh, let's reinitiate this spike. It, it just seems to th th there's a bit of a latency period, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. So um, based on that, people said, OK, we need to do this kind of intricate protein timing and distribution, these various strategies. But it's really important to recognize that those uh, the mechanistic findings there. Uh, generally speaking, don't come from people who are lifting weights during the study. And the reason that matters is because in the grand scheme of things, lifting weight has a way bigger impact on muscle protein synthesis. Uh, it, it is a huge elevation in protein synthesis and it lasts for days, not hours. You know, we're, we're talking about at least, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours of sustained elevations in protein synthesis. So there is reason to believe that some of these mechanistic differences kind of become less important when you're lifting weights. Uh, another important consideration is those mechanistic findings that would lead us toward these really nuanced recommendations for protein timing. 
broadly speaking, they're coming from studies where people are fasted and they come into a lab and they're given a single dose of protein and then they wait and they give another single dose of protein. And it's usually like whey protein. So hot, very rapidly digestible without additional food sources. The reason that matters is because it has minimal relevance to a human diet. We are constantly eating food that takes a long time to digest. And then by the time our next meal comes along, we're still digesting part of our previous meal. It's kind of the, the analogy that Eric Helms uses is he calls it like a conga line where yeah. meals kind of lining up one after another, slowly working through our digestive system. So these like really nuanced, uh, transient time specific effects of pulsing protein when you put it in the context of a real diet with real food that takes time to digest, uh, it starts to lose some relevance. So with all that stuff in mind, those are the big caveats. What we can say looking at the research in people who are lifting weights over time, eating real meals, it looks like it is better to eat two discrete servings of protein in a day. Two is better than one. So you don't want to get all your protein in a single meal. Uh, there's also evidence that three is a little better than two. It's not a huge difference, but it is a difference that can be quantified and measured. So what I usually, and, and I should also mention, there's there's evidence that six is no better than three. And again, with these numbers, I'm talking about discrete uh, individual meals at which a sufficient bolus or serving of protein is ingested. So hmm. you can look at the evidence in people who are lifting and consuming actual food and say, Two is better than one. Three is a little better than two. But once you're in that range of three to six, which it, practically speaking is where most people find themselves just based on uh, cultural norms of meal timing and constraints of like, it's kind of hard to have time to eat 10 meals per day, right? So yeah. three to six seems to be the sweet spot. Uh, based on the literature and also seems to be a very comfortable spot for most individuals based on their time constraints and cultural norms pertaining to meal feeding. So uh, yeah, three to six meals per day, I, I would consider the sweet spot. Um, and I, I, I just would caution people against, uh, blowing that out of proportion, you know? So I, I usually tell people, you know, try to find a meal timing strategy that most importantly fits your schedule and is not logistically overwhelming. It's not something that's going to strain your family because you say, hey, you know that that nightly dinner that's very important to all of us for a variety of different reasons? Actually, screw that because I can <laughs> this stuff because I'm chasing the extra 300 grams of muscle tissue over the next six months. Uh, you're going to value those connections with your family more than the 300 grams of muscle tissue over a six-month period. I absolutely guarantee it. Uh, or at least I very much hope. So, you know, I not not to make a value judgment, but what I'm trying to indicate here is the any gains that you're seeking out by making a, a very convoluted and complex meal timing strategy, they're going to be somewhere between minimal and negligible. Uh, so one meal a day, probably not ideal, but three, four, five, six, those all seem to do just fine. And would you recommend a minimum amount of protein per meal that within that? You know, usually what I say is, uh, you know, we, we talked about kind of that ideal protein range. What, mm -hmm. what I usually encourage people to do is set a feasible, realistic daily protein target that's in line with your goals. And then just try to split it as evenly as you can across mm -hmm. however many meals you're eating, right? So usually when you start crunching the numbers and you do hypothetical examples, you'll find, yeah, broadly speaking, that puts you at at, le at least 20, 25, 30 grams of protein per meal. And so that that basically fits well with the research available. When we look at, you know, specific, you know, there, there's some studies saying that, you know, the, the perfect amount of protein for a meal is 0.24 grams of protein per kilogram body weight or something like that. You know, you'll, you'll see these little things and studies comparing 20 versus 40 grams, 40 versus 80, et cetera. Generally speaking, if you're in that range, I recommended yeah, 1.4, 1 1.6, 1 1.8 grams per kilogram per day, and you divide that into three to six meals relatively evenly, you're, you're going to be just fine on a meal-to-meal -meal basis. 
That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for explaining. Now, we did a deep dive into um, vegan protein and protein in general. So I we might not have time to cover everything because obviously I want to be uh, respectful of your own time. Uh, I do want to touch upon what you said. Another concern was, which was micronutrient coverage. So for health and also body composition, which micronutrients, if any, should people trying to go vegan or vegetarian be concerned with and how can they make up for any potential deficiency? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And by the way, just so you know, I don't have any time constraints, so we, we can oh, take you have as none. much time as you want. No, oh, perfect. No, I, in that case, I will knock you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a professional blogger. I, there's no such thing as time constraints. Uh, I just sit on my couch all day. That's perfect. Uh, we'll cover everything if we can. So, yeah. So did you did you want to stay on protein with that Im information in mind or do you want to move on to, to micronutrients? So in that case, uh, with protein, we covered daily intake, quality um, distribution, types of protein for vegetarians and vegans. I think that is plenty to go on for anyone who wants to make the switch or who is already vegan or vegetarian. So I do still agree, I do still believe that moving on to the next concern of micronutrients is is going to be a good segue in this if, particular case. If I could add one thing, so just yes, one thing ahead. about protein to facilitate practical application, just because I've made this transition myself, I've helped my clients transition to more plant-based uh, eating mm -hmm. patterns. Um, and of course, it, it's worth acknowledging. It doesn't have to be extreme, you know? So like I started out by just incorporating some more plant-based proteins, but I was still omnivorous. And then I got into vegetarian, but still consuming eggs and dairy. And then eventually, you know, working toward vegan. But, you know, wherever you want to fall on that spectrum is totally fine. Uh, but, but one thing that comes up a lot is, you know, we talked about essential amino acids, and I mentioned that a lot of protein sources will can will be lacking on, of like, they'll be missing out on one or two essential amino acids uh, when we look at these vegan protein sources. So, you know, some pro a, a key one that a lot of protein sources will be missing on a vegan diet is lysine. And another one is methionine. Uh, and so people will start to ask like, well, what do I do about that uh, practically speaking? What can I actually, how, how do I act upon that information uh, in the real world? And what's really convenient is that you don't have to look at every single protein source and bring up its entire essential amino acid composition and start doing these, you know, matching exercises across nine different dimensions. It's not like you have to seek out these random missing essential. It's usually very simple where you've got a whole food group that lacks lysine, but has plenty of methionine. And you've got a whole food group that lacks methionine, but has plenty of lysine, right? So it's very easy where you can take these two food groups that are basically mirror images in terms of what they lack and what they have an abundance of. You put them together easy you've got your essential amino acid uh, bases covered. Uh, so with that in mind, there are uh, what we call, what we, the, the term we use for that is complementary protein matching. So you, you find two protein sources that are complementary to one another so that you can combine them to replicate a, a much higher quality protein by combining them rather than leaving them separately. Now, you don't necessarily have to do this for every meal. It's just over the course of a full day, you don't want to have a massive shortcoming of lysine or a massive shortcoming of methionine. You want to make sure that you have a nice diverse selection of protein sources, but it's very easy. So for example, uh, foods that are missing threonine and lysine, this whole category, we're talking about oats, rice, pasta, rye, wheat, corn. So a lot of grain products tend to be missing those two uh, amino acids. But if we look at the ones that are just missing methionine, we're looking at beans, lentils, peanuts, chickpeas, peas, soybeans. Okay, so what, what we can say is we can match up the first category and the second category, put them together, and they're going to be just fine. Uh, foods that are just missing lysine tend to be a lot of seeds and nuts, right? So walnuts, cashews, sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, just a variety of seeds and nuts tend to be missing lysine, but they have plenty of methionine. So what that means is we can take... Uh, you know, the, the bean and lentil group, and we can combine that with the nuts and seeds group. When we combine those two together, we have a nice complementary mix. So what, what you should be hearing from that is 
this is not hard. I mean, this <laughs> is just, it, if you are just like putting together a meal that anyone would actually want to eat and you're not just eating the same singular protein source throughout the entire day, every day on a vegan diet, you're going to be just fine. So that's why I mentioned, I, I kind of call it a misconception with all the, the protein quality stuff because theoretically it matters, but practically it kind of just doesn't because I mean, like I said, uh, for dinner every night, I, I usually have rice and some kind of bean, right? And so that's just a lovely meal. And if you look at a lot of different cu cuisines across, across the entire world, you will find that complementary protein matching happens as a, as a mechanism of building palatable meals rather than some strategic dietary, uh, intervention, right? So, uh, you know, when, when we combine, you know, uh, something that's missing methionine with something that's missing lysine. It's usually because they just, they just seem to go well together as a meal. So I just wanted to acknowledge that, that complementary protein matching exists. Uh, it is a strategy to overcome low quality scores for individual proteins, but it, it's a lot easier and more intuitive than people expect. And as long as you have a diverse selection of protein sources on a vegan diet, it generally tends to take care of itself. Uh, two things as long as you have enough uh, total protein and you have a diverse selection of protein sources. W with those two things, you usually don't have to do any additional effort really for complementary protein matching. And, and that's the last thing I wanted to mention. No, that was a really good point, actually. It uh, slipped my mind. I'm still quite new to interviewing people. So even though I take plenty of notes, sometimes I'm, I'm, my brain goes, ah, because I'm learning so much from listening to, to the uh, guests in you in this case. So uh, then you said, okay, adequate daily protein intake plus a varied diet, essentially. And what that means is combine different sources of different grains, different seeds and nuts and different legumes and beans within your diet and you're going to have your protein needs covered as a vegan or vegetarian would that be a, a an accurate quick summary yeah perfect and that's a wrap for part one stay tuned for part two next week and thank you for listening so far <music> lastly if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.